This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If President Trump meets Kim Jong-un this month, there's little doubt ending North Korea's nuclear program will be discussed. Another issue that might eventually come up, an American ship named after a Colorado city that sits on a river in Pyongyang. It's the USS Pueblo, the only U.S. naval vessel held captive by a foreign government. Today, we hear about the capture and torture of its crew 50 years ago in 1968 from Jack Cheevers, author of Act of War. Hi, Jack. Morning, Nathan. Just last month, Republican Congressman Scott Tipton, who represents Pueblo, sent a letter to President Trump advocating for the ship's return. Since its capture, the USS Pueblo has been a propaganda piece, a powerful symbol of a North Korean military victory over the U.S. The great leader Kim Jong-il said as follows. The brave seamen of our people's army captured Pueblo, the armed spyship of the U.S. imperialists, which was conducting espionage in our territorial waters, and over 80 aggressors on board a ship. It was a severe punishment to the U.S. imperialist aggressors who violated the sovereignty of our country. That's from a video shown on board the ship, which has become a museum of the Pueblo's capture. Uh, first off, Jack, describe this ship for us. What was the USS Pueblo specifically designed to do? Well, the Pueblo originally was a uh, an army cargo ship, and it was pretty small. It was only 176 feet long. And uh, in the 60s, uh, it was acquired by the Navy and very hastily converted into a uh, a platform for electronic surveillance. In other words, it was a spy ship. And its mission in North Korea was to uh, try to tune in on uh, coastal radar and radio radio stations and try to pinpoint them uh, so that in the event of war between the United States and North Korea, uh, our aircraft and ships would be able to target those uh, installations. So its job was, was to spy and, and to stay in international waters just off the coast of North Korea, protected really only by international law, which dictates how far ships must remain from foreign coasts. Can you give us a taste of the 83-man crew? They were given a ship barely seaworthy. You talk about how the, the engine broke often and rudders were breaking, but it was packed to the hilt with the latest spy technology. Yes, it was. And uh, you're right, it was uh, essentially uh, unprotected. It was it was sent on its mission uh, without any sort of um, aircraft, uh, combat aircraft to protect it. There were no you know, uh, Navy destroyers or over the horizon to uh, rush in in the, in the event of an emergency. Uh, and it was, uh, it was packed to the gunnels with, uh, with top-secret equipment, uh, different kinds of uh, code machines, all sorts of um, uh, uh, secret messages that uh, had been sent to the ship by uh, other Navy commands. And it, w- it, was, uh, it was quite a prize, actually, for the North Koreans to capture it. And so was this crew, were they uh, trained in all of this reconnaissance and covert uh, operations? Well, the, uh, the most of the crew were uh, Navy sailors, regular Navy sa- sailors, and they were pretty young. They were, uh, most of them were in their 20s. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a component of the crew who were called communications technicians, and uh, they were highly trained people. Uh, they knew how to run all the surveillance equipment. Uh, some of them were uh, trained um, linguists. They spoke North Korean. They spoke Russian. Uh, and those were the people who actually did the uh, the surveillance work. Tell us about the uh, commander of the USS Pueblo. He was a muscled 40-year-old ex-submarine officer whom a friend called an intellectual barbarian. 
Yes, uh, that's uh, Commander uh, Lloyd Booker. Uh, his nickname was Pete, and he was a uh, career Navy officer. Uh, he was uh, a very gung-ho guy. Uh, he had uh, enlisted in the Navy uh, as a young guy uh, at the end of World War II and uh, later went to uh, the University of Nebraska, got his degree, uh, came out and rejoined the Navy as an officer and went into submarines. And during the the 1950s, uh, he was uh, the executive officer on board uh, three different subs, and they all operated in the Western Pacific, and uh, they all engaged in uh, also in secret uh, reconnaissance and surveillance missions, uh, primarily against the Soviet Union at that time. And by the uh, by the the early 60s, um, he was uh, surfaced, what they call surfaced in the Navy. He was taken out of the submarine corps, and he was given his first command of a ship, which uh, happened to be the Pueblo. And uh, he was, uh, as you mentioned, he was a very intelligent guy. He was, uh, uh, he, he, he loved people. He was an incredible party animal. I mean, he, he would go to these parties, he would organize parties, and he would go to, uh, you know, all these dive bars and all the ports that they, they stopped at, and this, he would be singing at the top of his lungs, and and just, you know, swapping jokes with anybody who happened to be around. Uh, but he was also a, uh, uh, he was a family man. He was, he was married. He had two sons. Uh, and uh, he was very devoted to the Navy. And uh, um, he, he was just a fascinating guy. I really, I spent many hours with him, interviewing him, and I, I really enjoyed him. So it's around uh, 11 years, I, I believe, after the Korean War. The Cold War is in full swing. What were Booker's thoughts about commanding this ship into waters off North Korea to spy? Did he feel his men and, and the Pueblo were, were prepared? Well, he he said at the uh, the uh, Navy hearing after uh, the crew came home that uh, that the crew was prepared uh, for the mission, uh, but I'm I'm not sure that he was he really believed that. Mm. Uh, I don't think anybody on the ship anticipated. That the North Koreans would uh, would come out and actually attack and 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 try to capture the ship. Uh, Booker uh, was uh, you know this was the first surface mission that he had. He was very concerned about what would happen uh, as he approached a you know a, a hostile communist coast. And he asked various officers in the Navy, "Well, what can we expect?" And he was told uh, a couple of times that uh, basically you're you're on your own. I mean, we, you know, we we. We don't have ships or aircraft that can protect you while you're on station, but if anything bad happens, uh, you know, we'll retaliate very swiftly. Uh, but we don't think anything bad is going to happen. The Navy had, had uh, other Navy ships had transited the North Korean coast on similar missions in the, in the 60s, and the North Koreans hadn't reacted. Uh, but in this, ca- this case, they did come out and uh, confronted Booker and, and opened fire on the ship and ultimately uh, captured the ship. Right. So, so the Navy really wasn't expecting anything. So were they, were they pre- prepared for that? I know that uh, he had asked for, um, you know, a self-destruction system, you know, to destroy all this stuff. But they're like, we don't have that in our budget to give you. And so he had axes and things to destroy uh, the intelligence stuff. Yeah, they they uh, they just weren't ready for what happened. Uh, the Navy was really caught with its pants down, and and I I don't think you know as I, I mentioned, Booker or any of his officers were prepared for what happened, and they were as you mentioned, they're very poorly equipped to deal with it. Uh, instead of having uh, thermite, for instance, to uh, destroy the uh, electronic equipment, uh, just to burn it, uh, burn through it quickly, uh, uh, they didn't they didn't have any any 
capacity to shred the documents. They had stacks and stacks of, of top-secret documents uh, on the ship, and all they really had were, were um, sledgehammers and fire axes to try and destroy the uh, the, the hardware, and uh, the hardware happened to be very well constructed, and the sledgehammers just bounced off them for the most part. Uh, so they, the crew was not able to destroy very much of the hardware or the, the top-secret paper before the North Koreans came aboard. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Jack Cheevers. His book, An Act of War, chronicles the seizing of the USS Pueblo by North Korea in January 1968 and the capture and torture of its crew. Jack, the USS Pueblo on January 23, 1968, ended up in trouble. North Korean ships and airplanes were closing in quick, so Booker orders his men to destroy all of this sensitive equipment. Uh, they were being fired on by military uh, uh, ships and planes. Take us to that day. Take us to what was happening on board the USS Pueblo. Well, it was uh, it was a very uh, chaotic moment. Uh, the Pueblo was uh, very close to North Korea. Uh, it was about 15 miles offshore. It was it was in international waters. Uh, when it was suddenly surrounded by um, uh, four North Korean PT boats and two North Korean sub-chasers, uh, both armed with 57-millimeter uh, cannon. The PT boats, of course, had torpedoes as well as machine guns. And there were two MiG jet fighters overhead, and the Pueblo had very little to defend itself with. It had two fifty caliber machine guns. Uh, and no backup guns. was coming. There were no planes, the U.S. planes coming, no U.S. ships. There was, they were alone, like you said. They were they were all by themselves, and Booker knew that you know his ship was no match for these these other combat ships. So he tried to run. Uh, he turned the ship around and and tried to head back out to sea, and and ordered his men to destroy as much uh, equipment and paper as they could. And they were frantically swinging their sledgehammers and their and their fire axes. They were frantically trying to rip apart these very heavy uh, manuals. Um, uh, you know operating manuals for all their surveillance gear uh, while they were being fired upon. And uh, the North Koreans were firing uh, their machine guns at them. They were pumping cannon shells into the into the ship. There were holes in the ship everywhere. Uh, one of the men was uh, was hit in uh, in the groin by a by a, a cannon shell. Uh, basically, his, his leg was all but severed. Uh, there were 10 other people who were wounded, including the captain who was hit by shrapnel. And uh, Booker realized that there was no way he could escape if he kept running. The North Koreans would just cut him to pieces with um, all their guns. So he finally decided to stop, and the North Koreans boarded and, and captured the Pueblo at that point. And that's a huge deal. He doesn't fire a shot. He doesn't order shots fired. It It, it is one of the first times, I think, in a long time back then where a ship was seized without any fight from, from the U.S. Navy. Is that right? Yeah, that was the first time that uh, the Navy had surrendered a ship in uh, in more than 150 years. And, you know, of course, the, the, the first commandment of the, of the Navy is don't give up the ship. And that's exactly what Booker had done. And he was very, very vilified for that, uh, particularly in the, in the higher echelons of the Navy. I mean, the, uh, many Navy officers considered him a coward and a disgrace to the service. And uh, and uh, uh, he, he just uh, he, he couldn't have done anything worse uh, in the eyes of a lot of Navy commanders. So how long were the men in captivity? I know when they arrived in North Korea, they were paraded in front of the North Korean uh, media and they were uh, essentially used as propaganda pieces. What was life like for them in captivity? Well, they were they were captured in uh, 
January of 1968, and they were kept in prison in North Korea uh, for 11 months. They were actually released and came home uh, to San Diego on Christmas Eve in 1968. And they were tortured uh, and, 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 and harassed and beaten up? Yeah, they were, uh, they were subjected to all sorts of uh, physical torture, uh, all sorts of psychological pressure. Um, they were forced to write uh, false confessions. They were forced to write letters home to their relatives saying, you know, please lobby uh, the U.S. government to make an apology to North Korea so we can come home. They're threatening to kill us. Uh, they were beaten with rifle butts. They were uh, thrown downstairs. They they were starved. I mean, they were on this uh, starvation de- diet. I think at one point they were getting about 500 calories a day, and they were losing huge amounts of body weight. Booker, Booker lost about 80 pounds. He was a, a good 200-pounder. Uh, at the beginning of this thing, and and lost a, a third of his body weight, basically. So what was uh, what was happening back home, though? I know President Lyndon Johnson uh, built up a massive amount of of military power, naval power out out in the Pacific. Yes, uh, uh, Johnson uh, was rattling the U.S. military saber as loudly as possible, hoping that the North Koreans would would back down and and give back the crew. Uh, he uh, sent something like uh, three hundred and fifty. Uh, U.S. combat aircraft uh, into South Korean and, North, and Japanese bases. Uh, they moved uh, a, a, a naval task force into the Sea of Japan, about 25 uh, Navy ships led by the uh, aircraft carrier Enterprise. And they stayed there for uh, months, uh, hoping that the North Koreans would uh, would back down in the face of this, this U.S. military buildup. Uh, but the North Koreans didn't do that, and instead uh, they put out feelers to the U.S. that they were willing to negotiate in secret over the crew and the return of the crew and the ship. And so those negotiations started in February of '68 and uh, uh, continued for the rest of the time that the the men were in prison. And eventually they were returned, and you said they were they arrived in San Diego on Christmas Eve, I, I think, 1968. Yes, they they finally uh, reached a, a deal with the, the North Koreans. Uh, the North Koreans, from day one, uh, never wavered in their demands, and their demand was that the U.S. Uh, sign a written apology uh, for spying uh, in their territorial waters, which wasn't true, uh, and that the, that the written document be signed by a high-ranking official of the U.S. government, and eventually the the arrangement was that uh, a, a major general in the U.S. Army actually did sign that document. But before he did, he said, this thing is a pack of lies, and I'm signing it, you know, for to, to release the crew and only for the release of the crew. And that satisfied the North Koreans, and the crew was released, and they came home, and uh, they arrived at Miramar Naval Air Station in San Diego to a, a tumultuous uh, welcome by the public uh, all Three television networks were broadcast in their arrival live. Governor Reagan was there from California to greet them. Uh, it was it was quite a scene at the airbase that day. So, moving forward to today, what what is the the chance that this ship could be returned to the U.S.? I know Colorado Congressman Tipton has sent a letter to Trump asking that this be brought up if the two leaders meet. What do you think? Well, I know that uh, people in Colorado have been have been uh, agitating for this for for many years, and um, I know that uh, the members of the Pueblo crew who are still alive would dearly love to see the ship come home, and many Navy veterans would dearly love to sh- see the ship come home. Uh, I just don't think that's um, very 
unlikely. Uh, the Pueblo is unfortunately not a very well-known story uh, among most Americans, uh, and there's been no, you know, groundswell of public opinion uh, to demand its return. Um, and even if there was, I'm not sure the North Koreans would be willing to give it up. It's a, as you mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge propaganda prize that they use as, as basically a. Uh, a uh, war memorial museum to condemn Americans and, and condemn the you know the imperialist aggressors uh, that, it, that they claim attacked North Korea uh, in 1950, uh, which of course is not the case. Uh, I just don't think there's enough political will to uh, to get the ship back in this country. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan. Jack Cheevers is the author of An Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the capture of the spy ship USS Pueblo. It was just one of the tumultuous events that shaped 1968. Fifty years later, we're looking back at that pivotal year, and that includes its music. We've been inviting Colorado bands to record their favorite songs from 68. Inea Lujan and Desiree Garcia of Pueblo perform as In Plains. The married duo's folk pop sound recalls other notable music spouses like Paul and Linda McCartney. So it may be no surprise that they chose a Beatles song for their 68 throwback. Luhan says he was drawn to Long, Long, Long from the White Album because of the song's spiritual context. To me, like what the Beatles and what a lot of bands were doing in the late 60s, were, were tapping into a higher spirituality. In other words, they were uh, kind of getting away from this idea of organized religion being the only way to to discover God or discover some sort of higher power. So um, the Beatles going to India and bringing back Eastern music to America was huge in an entire movement of, of people discovering different types of expressions for spirituality and knowledge, I, I guess, was coming out in Western society and people were, were tuning into that. That's always been a, fascinating to me. It's been a long, long, long time How could I Written by George Harrison, it's one of the more obscure Beatles songs, but with a message that is timeless for fans like Luhan. I think the song still resonates because I think that that spirituality is an endless quest. It's something that we'll never truly understand. We could only kind of um, extract big ideas and put it into our poetry and put it into our music. You know, when you tap into something that's a little more universal or on the spiritual side, which George Harrison just kind of effortlessly did, I think that that has a timelessness to it, that it doesn't have an expiration date. It's something that you can go back to that it's going to still have validity and truth. Pueblo's In Plains, covering the Beatles' 1968 Long, 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 a 50-year-old love song that still resonates today. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You think climbing up 2,700 steps might be tough, right? Well, imagine doing it on your butt, using your arms to propel you. Double amputee Mandy Horvath did just that on the famed Manitou Incline in April. The Colorado Springs woman is no stranger to extraordinary challenges and pain. Her legs were crushed by a train four years ago. But she plans to do the incline again on June 10th and continue all the way to the top of Pikes Peak. Mandy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. First, uh, tell us how you ended up um, on a train track uh, a long time ago. What happened? Uh, July 26th of 2014. Um, like you said, I was involved in an incident where I wound up on train tracks. I mm-hmm was in Steel City, Nebraska, and the only thing in Steel City is a little post office, a bar, and train tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was with people I thought I could trust that evening, and I had two beers, two shots, and world went black, woke up in an ambulance. Wow. And so you had blacked out and eventually ended up on these train tracks and, and had no idea what had happened when you, when you woke up. It's suspected now that I was incapacitated by a date rape drug. <clears throat> um you know, things like that happen more frequently than you would think. It's a very serious issue that more people need to be aware of. So waking up to that must have been terrifying. I mean, what, what was your mind like? Um, you know, whenever I was in the ambulance, I was still in shock. And so I didn't recognize that I lost my legs. Um, <laughs> the paramedic was slapping my face and trying to keep me with him. And <sighs> I had tried to sit up and I'm like, I'm fine. I want to go home. What's going on? And he he slapped me back down onto the table and started strapping on a cervical collar. And that's whenever I tried to sit up once more and he told me I'd lost my legs. And I looked at him dumbfounded because I couldn't really see his face because the lights of yeah. the ambulance. And I was like, my legs are fine and I'm going home. And that's when I kind of kicked my legs in the air like a child throwing a temper tantrum and uh, quickly realized they were really light and blood was going everywhere. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was a, kind of a harrowing experience, and that's when I faded out for the first time, and they put me in a medically induced coma for the next few days. So your legs were amputated above the knee, both of them. Yes. Um, after these surgeries, you were angry, you were depressed. Uh, the remaining bones began to grow again and had to be reamputated again. Christmas Day, two thousand fifteen. Uh, so, yeah, that's a low part, obviously, of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I was getting back into prosthetics, and my legs weren't even healed yet. And so, that back set of the um, osseo reintegration, the the bone growth, uh, mm. regeneration, excuse me, was really um, disappointing. So, uh, my producer talked to me about how. One day you were lying on the couch, you're feeling sorry about yourself, and and your father just gave you this really, really hard time. Tell me about that day and tell me about what he said and and how that changed kind of your mindset. Um, You know, I had kind of been really depressed, as (laughs) one can imagine, and I was just sitting around. I had been gaining weight. Um, I was on 22 different medications just from all the surgeries and the side effects of everything. And uh, my dad, he came out one day and he goes, you're getting fat, you're you're lazy, and you're not going to amount to anything like this. Oh. Uh, you need to get up off your rear and <laughs> go do something about this. And so what about that? Was like, okay, here we go. What, 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 what was it about that? Um, something about telling me that I, I can't do something or I won't amount to something uh, sets a fire in my soul. <laughs> like across my chest, it's kind of a famed um, – 
saying, so to say, uh, tell me that I can't and I'll show you that I can. Oh, and I see you have a little uh, a tattoo. I can yeah. just sticking out a little bit of, over your, yeah, it says, yeah. tell me that I can't and I'll show you that I can. Is that right? Absolutely. So, so you're here in Colorado now. How long have you been here? I moved here in January of 2016. And uh, I... From Missouri, where, you know, the great outdoors and stuff like that was very involved and very attached to my life. And uh, I I kept seeing all my friends with these cool mountain pictures. And I'm like, I want to go get some of my own. (laughs) And and you have prosthetic legs. Yes. uh, Yet you aren't going to use them to climb the Manitou Incline in Pikes Peak. You're going to use your your butt and using your arms. Why is that? Why not just go up on, on your legs? Um, you know, it's not feasible with prosthetics because the knee joint, uh, I, I have microprocessor knees with Bluetooth capabilities and they're awesome to yeah. work with on flat, stable ground, but climbing stairs and mountains is a bit of a different task. And <laughs> I just feel like I have more flexibility and more motion, um, outside of my chair and outside of my legs. You know? So the first time you decided to do this, um, what was the inspiration? Who, who, who said, Hey, you should go up the incline. Um, I had been saying for a long time that I was going to do it, and a lot of people looked at me like, oh, you're you're crazy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, tell me that I can't, and I'll show you that I can. And I was going through a bit of a depressive phase, and I was just kind of like, I'm going to do this today. <laughs> and so in April, when you when you did this, you, you wanted to, to raise awareness for Limb Loss Awareness Month, right? Absolutely. And to prove that you could do it. Um, you, you went out there, and, and you were, you're ready to do it. Uh, what did it feel like that day going up the incline? What, what were other people saying and what was what was your mindset? I was really worried, actually. I was worried that people were going to point, laugh, um, you know, take pictures or low-key vi- video me. And uh, nobody laughed. Everybody was very supportive. Most everybody made me stop and give them a high five or, you know, just a congratulations. Keep going. You're almost halfway there. You're You're almost to the top. And it was very... Very inspiring to get that kind of support from the community. So you plan on going all the way up to the summit of Pikes Peak this time, right? Yes. That seems like a a little (laughs) bit longer (laughs) than just going up the incline. Yeah. And um, so on June 10th, we're all meeting at Pikes Peak Kylie-Davidson at 9 a.m. for a little birthday party before I go up to the incline. And then uh, I'm going to do the incline again. And it's going to be a two-day camping trip just so I can space it out. I have to be... Um, you know, cognizant of my body. And, um, you know, I've always been a person to believe in the philosophy that I'd rather be the tortoise than the hare. Oh, yeah. Is this going to be your first 14er? <laughs> yes, it'll be my first. And, and so talk about f- physically how, how you're going to be doing this. Do you go up uh, backwards, forwards? Give us a little bit of an idea of how you actually go up the mountain. Um, I go from side to side. I go backwards. I just try to keep all of my muscles um, working because if you get one side that's a little tired, you oh, yeah. start to exhaust yourself. And I don't necessarily want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have special gear that you that you have to wear to protect your skin and stuff? Um, last time I went up, I went up in jeggings and a pair of motorcycle gloves that I had and a simple tank top. Um, this time, obviously, I'm going to need some more hefty gear. And so I've created like an Amazon wish list and Hopefully that that gets some attention because I'm <laughs> not exactly a rich kid and I've never climbed 14 or so. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with double amputee Mandy Horvath. She climbed the famed Manitou Incline in April and she's going to do it again on June 10th and continue all the way to the top of Pikes Peak. 
how did it feel when you you got to the top of the incline and you looked back down at those you know all those steps going straight down the it's very steep what what was your thought Oh my gosh when I got to the top I kind of laid my pack down and I just set my hat on it and um, looked up to the sky and I was like, well, the sky doesn't look much different from here and sat up and quickly realized that I'm going to get vertigo if I keep looking down those stairs. It's uh, it's really remarkable. And I I don't know. It was just, hey, I did it. <laughs> and and I, I'm thinking, you know, you, you may have thought way back to that time on the couch. Yeah. With your dad. Yeah. You know, getting back out into um, nature is really important to me. And I'm glad that I can do it um, to raise awareness for Limb Loss Awareness Month. Um, You know, amputees face a lot of the same things that veterans do, the depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, heavy medication loads. And it's something that I would advocate against because (laughs) if you can just get outside, even if you can't walk um, or hike, crawl. (laughs) Have you met a lot of veterans? Uh, yes, absolutely. A lot of my friends are veterans. Uh, in fact, my sister's <laughs> overseas right now on deployment. Uh, last I knew, she was in Greece, but I believe she's back out at sea. So, Did, did you get help from them a- as you recovered since they'd been there? Since they, Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I've had a lot of friends that are military that have been um, blown up in Afghanistan or Iraq, and they reached out to me as a new amputee, and they were very, um, very accepting of me in the community. And something that's really important in recovery is having that support system, people that understand and uh, can relate to you. Yeah. I uh, want to touch on something a little bit more funny for a second. Uh, You were in the news when you first did that climb up the incline. But a while back, you also got some notoriety from your Tinder profile. Oh, boy. (laughs) uh, For for being kind of funny. Can, Can you tell people what you wrote in that profile? Um. A lot of my humor is uh, not very PG, but <laughs> I was just trying to kind of sexualize my disability and make people realize a little differently that, hey, the wheelchair is not scary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, little things like it's not uncomfortable for my legs to be above my head and you get free row, front row parking and, um, you know, <laughs> just silly little things. Well, and, and you said disclaimer, I don't have legs, but don't worry, I'm taking it in stride. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And I'll never run away from you, front row parking. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and does that surprise other other people that, that you're like you're being so uh, uh, honest and upfront about your disability? Ah, it surprises a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people seem to think I'm crass or um, a little rude, and it's not at all the case. I just happen to have a little bit of a deeper sense of humor. Like just the other day, I was talking to one of my coworkers, and I was like, "You don't shave your legs," and she's like, "No," and I was like, "Yeah, me either." <laughs> You know, and I didn't even mean to. It's just like you have to learn how to laugh about yourself. You have to yeah. learn how to laugh at your situation sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so, so on when you when you make this climb, what happens if you don't make it to the top? Uh, that's not an option. <laughs> it's not an option. Like I said, uh, that's why there's so much planning going into this, and uh, you know, it's going to be a two day. Um, camping and three days hiking, so I can be the little tortoise and make it all the way to the top. So, are you going to be documenting it on Facebook? I know you did a Facebook Live before you came on the air today. Yeah, so um, I found some loopholes through uh, the videography part, and yeah. as long as it's a personal climb for my birthday, I can have a team of videographers and photographers go with me, and so it will be definitely documented. And uh, later, um, there will be a documentary on it. So. It's going to be really awesome. 
Well, best of luck to you, and, and we'll, we'll we'll talk to you hopefully when when you when you come down from the top. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. On June 10th, double amputee Mandy Horvath of Colorado Springs plans to climb the Manitou Incline and continue up Pikes Peak. Environmental themes in kids' books are changing. Stories show worlds harmed by climate change and environmental destruction. But today's heroes use magic and intuition to manage the planet's most difficult problems. CPR's Grace Hood explains. At the beginning of his writing career, Fort Collins author Todd Mitchell steered clear of environmental themes for his audience, readers in grades 4 through 6. Problems like species extinction and climate change just seem too complex. But one of the first things when you write for, for young people is to realize never underestimate them. Mitchell's latest book, The Last Panther, tests the limits. It takes place in an apocalyptic world that used to be Florida. Two divided human populations deal with climate change and hurricanes that have flooded the coasts, creating swamps. Resources and food are scarce. Thousands of animal species have died off. Mitchell's 11-year-old main character, Kiri, discovers a panther long thought to be extinct. I start every book I write with a question. And with this book, the question was, what is a species worth? The discovery touches off a new wave of conflict over the animal. Each human group has different goals. So then the question became, how far would you go to protect a species? Um, And how far could a young person go? In the end, Kiri finds a compromise that brings the two groups closer than they've ever been. Decades ago, environmental literature for kids used to pit main characters against nature to survive. Kids had small problems to solve and weren't given much power to do it. But Mitchell says this generation has grown up with climate change and developed different sensibilities. They want to see problem solving and solutions. So it makes sense that what they're looking for, and I think what maybe writers are looking for too, is stories that then move beyond that apocalypse and say, how do we take a really difficult situation but also find a way to turn it into something good? Middle grade fiction is for readers discovering who they are and how they fit into the world. Fort Collins author Laura Resaw is finishing her ninth book called Tree of Dreams for this audience, the first to delve into environmental themes. Her main character struggles to come to terms with deforestation in the Amazon jungle. You don't have to write a dry issues-driven book to get an environmental message across. You can write an adventure story, a mystery. You can infuse it with magic and mythology. In Resaw's book, just like Mitchell's, there are no good guys or bad guys, just a web of complicated problems and trade-offs. The characters in her book feature humans, animals, and a tree that talks. You know, the tree in my story is part of a much bigger picture, and it takes the animals and plants and people working together to protect the forest, ultimately. Middle grade author Elliot Schrafer is also part of this new wave of environmental fiction for kids. He elevates animals even further in his latest book, The Lost Rainforest. The fantasy novel features only animal characters. Together, they try to save their forest from a threatening force. 
He spoke via Skype. After a work of fiction, you can have this emotional engagement where you you care in the same way that you care about a friend. You can care about the environmental impact on, say, an animal or, or, a, or an ecosystem. One common way for authors to bridge fiction with reality is an author's note at the end. It's a tool writers use to connect the reader with real-world problems that serve as a foundation for their story. Todd Mitchell's author's note reminds his readers that half of all plant and animal species will be extinct by the end of this century. One of my big concerns was that, gosh, is this, is this going to be too dark or too hard for young people to read? Throughout the writing process, Mitchell called on his then 10-year-old daughter, Addison, to give him feedback for the book. Do you remember what you told me? I said that a lot of people read dark books, and it's just good because, like, this kind of, like, it actually shows you what's really happening. And with that advice from his daughter, Mitchell created a book that has its ups and downs, but shows a world plagued by problems that retains optimism and hope. It will compete for a Colorado Book Award in early June. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Joel Van Horn makes music with an elegant sound, inspired by the natural world. Today, the Denver musician releases his third album as Covenhoven. It's called A Kind of Revelation. Oh, oh every once in a while. Oh, oh, I can hear the violins. Slowly the light. Van Horn wrote the album after visiting the west coast of California, Oregon, and Washington State. He adds a new layer to Kevin Hoven's folk rock sound with lush orchestral parts. Covenhoven performs June 12th at Denver's Bluebird Theater. Joel Van Horn joins us today. Hi. Hey, so happy to be here. Each album you've made as Covenhoven is tied to some time and place in your life, I understand. Your mm-hmm. first was inspired by your grandfather's cabin in Wyoming, your second by the National Parks of Utah, and this latest record came from your time touring the Pacific Coast. How do you decide on where you're going to go to record these things? You know, it's it's really uh, a question of where I want to see, where I want to, you know, be and and get to. And I think I was sort of dreaming up these um, these ideas and these uh, experiences in Olympic first. You know, that's kind of where this where this all began. And um, yeah, you know, I just kind of I I kind of put my feelers out and try to find that next location, um, but then also kind of improvise along the way and kind of let it, you know let it uh unfold as it as it occurs. Yeah. What do you mean what do you mean to improvise there? Like you're going to be on a road trip and say okay, this this place looks good. Let's stop here for Yeah. A yeah, oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, cuz we were touring um up and down the West Coast over these last couple of years and um I uh I just started realizing that the that the coastal theme was was coming back again and again and um yeah, I'm, I I always try to stay open, you know, in terms of of where these things are coming from and where it might lead, um, pretty much in every way when I make these records. I mean, there's definitely a, a link that you said between nature and, and your music. Could you write this in a city? Could you write this in New York or 
Seattle or something like Absolutely, that? Absolutely, yeah. I think so. I think um, you know, much of the of the first record was 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 written here in Denver. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the cabin um and write that record. It was it was more and it was actually kind of interesting. It was cool to have that perspective. Like yeah. and so the first because you can't get up there really in the winter. It's it's really snowed in. Um and so the first time that I listened to the record you know, going up to the cabin, being in that place uh, was really kind of a special experience. How did the ocean uh, uh, setting inspire you for this album? Uh, so many ways. Um, you know, living in Colorado, growing up here, um, going to the coast is a special experience, right? It's it's a If you're on the coast, if you grew up there, it might be a little different. It might be kind of normal to you, you know? Kind of like but mountains for, are for people yeah. in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, so I think going to the coast has always been a really special experience for me uh, as far back as I can remember. So I think it was it was only a matter of time that that it, that, that would become the muse for at least a record, if not more. Well, let's hear a, a song from a kind of revelation. This is Sirens of the Sea. play almost every instrument on your records. I imagine that can make for a long and even exhausting process. <laughs> what are the advantages of recording that way? I mean, why does it feel right for Kavenhoven? Um, I, I really enjoy it, for one. You know, I think that um, wearing all of these different hats throughout the process is actually a lot of fun. Um, and I love watching these and kind of experiencing these songs Um in the way that they unfold in the recording process. Plus, that actually um, is a big part of how I write the songs. You know, a lot of times the the initial demo, quote unquote, will be the actual uh, end track. You uh-huh. know, um, and so it'll just it's it's like a painting. You know, I I'll cover things up. I'll take things off. I'll I'll redo things. It'll just kind of evolve over time and so i think that's a big part of of this the creation of this music and and is it linear in terms of do you do you pick up let's say the guitar first and then you pick up the next instrument or do you go i'm gonna choose a skier instrument for this beat or part of it and then move move around Uh, naturally and organically is what i'm trying to ask yeah that's a great question i think um probably most often it starts on guitar just because that's the the instrument i fell in love with as a kid and and have always played um but uh, but no, I definitely try to change it up and you know and make it um, make it new and fresh each time. And so it'll generally start as some kind of idea, and then looking at it through a different lens, like say banjo, you know, yeah. and 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 trying um, different things out with that instrument will completely change the trajectory of that song in a way. And so I think that's what I enjoy most is that is is sort of being surprised myself as these things unfold. Like, oh, that's a new direction. Yeah. 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 One of the the few people you've collaborated with on A Kind of Revelation was your brother, Ben. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And he passed away shortly before the album's release. That must have just been devastating. 
Yeah, yeah, we're still working through it. It's um, it's it's pretty surprising. It doesn't actually feel real, you know. It it still feels like I can call Ben up and, um, you know, and and we we started really working a lot together in these last several years um, because he was becoming a, a pretty sought after and and successful um, audio engineer here in Denver and um, and he had a great future ahead of him and and I hope I, I hoped to. You know the the dream that I wanted to see um, come to life was was me and Ben on the road together and him doing front of house for Covenhoven and and traveling the world and 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 getting to you know sort of live our dreams together. Um, so it is a tough pill to swallow that that he's not going to be there for that. You know, and you know it's it's hard to match the camaraderie of a brother, especially when you get to work with him and do something that you love so um yeah we're gonna miss him a lot and you dedicated the album to him yes yes absolutely you're with colorado matters from cpr news we're speaking with joel van horn of denver band covenhoven his new album is a kind of revelation i remember when a song was a kind of revelation some sort of magic In the low light, listening close, trying to hear Bay Tovin's ghost come through the static. The lyrics in that song, which is the title track, seem to, to speak to this power of music. Are there certain pieces of music that, that are revelations for you, or, or, or maybe other composers or artists that speak to you? Oh man, absolutely. I think that's what I seek out in music most is 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 that feeling. Um, uh, Beethoven, of course, comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I just said in the song, yeah. I've always loved uh, pretty much everything I've heard from Beethoven, and I feel like he was tapped into something uh, very different and very special. Um, uh, so many, you know, so long ago, uh, so early in in the whole history and story of music, um, and I and I feel like. Occasionally, people will will tap into that same thing, and I think it's the, it's essentially this deep emotional connection that that uh, music can sometimes reach. You were uh, recently commissioned to write music for the Royal Gorge Bridge near Canyon City. After spending a little time there, you came up with the song Afterglow. When the last light set, it was like the whole world stopped and knelt in the silhouette. Flew across Orion's belt Far below The Arkansas was drifting slow In the afterglow So beautiful We can't believe it So beautiful We can't believe it Take us through a project like that, writing about a bridge. I, I imagine it's similar to using nature in place as inspiration. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably why that came about, because uh, they found me online and kind of read about what I do. That was tough, you know. It was it was kind of this thing that um, I said, yeah, I'll do it, but it didn't really know how it was going to turn out and, and told him that, you know, said, I don't know, I might get out there and have trouble coming up with something in two days. Um, but luckily, uh, once I was there and once it, we had this incredible sunset that night right on the bridge. And, and it so, worked out. Yeah, it worked out great, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. One of these days I wake up And one of those waves will catch the light right The storm will break up And the heavens will ignite One of those things they told us Joe Van Horn is the songwriter behind the Denver band Covenhoven. His new album, A Kind of Revelation, is out today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Public Radio. Like a dead boy, come back. Like the ghost of Kerouac. Like the ocean that you've been staring at. It's just a photograph.